As we continue in our study in 1 Corinthians, I want to hasten to indicate that this message is not for you if you do not know Jesus as your Savior. It's not for you. It's a very delicate matter, and you would get the wrong impression, all of you, if I shared this message with you out of the context of the series in 1 Corinthians. The reason is that these days, by virtue of various kinds of failures on the part of Christian leadership, we have reached a conclusion, in many of us, of skepticism, that Christian leaders are freeloaders at best, cheats at worst, that they are overpaid, not very talented, and up to no good. <laughs> the honest truth is the opposite in the vast majority of cases. But the exceptional case leads to a high degree of suspicion of Christian leaders these days, <clears throat> and that suspicion can even creep into the church. As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to be looking at Christian leadership over the next two weeks. Today we're looking at the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 14, where we'll look at the privileges and responsibilities of Christian leadership. And then next week we will look at the sacrifice and discipline of Christian leadership. So this week, privileges and responsibilities. Next week, sacrifice and discipline. <clears throat> I don't think I need to tell you, but I'm going to, that pastors in particular are facing many struggles these days. Some of you may be wondering why it is that it takes so long for us to find an associate pastor of youth. And the reason is that there are many people in ministry who are leaving it and not all that many people who are entering it. And so then when you cut that down to the thinner slice of people who would share our statement of faith and our philosophy of ministry, the number of eligible people gets very small. So I would encourage you to continue to pray about that. Um, Most pastors report being overworked. 70% of pastors feel grossly underpaid. 90% feel unprepared. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. 50% feel so discouraged that they will, would leave the ministry if they could, but they feel trapped. There are 1,700 pastors who leave the ministry in the United States every month. 80% believe that pastoral ministry has negatively impacted their families. 80% of pastors' spouses feel that their spouse is overworked, left out, underappreciated. 70% of all pastors do not have someone they consider a close friend, and 40% report a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. Um, 50% of, of ministers will not make it five years 
in ministry. And only one out of 10 pastors retires as a pastor. There was a study done of 1,050 Reformed and Evangelical pastors. 100% of them reported that they had a colleague who had left the ministry because of burnout, church conflict, or moral failure. 91% of all pastors have experienced some form of burnout in ministry. And in this remarkable survey, the description that they checked 18% of them checked the box that said, fried to a crisp right now. (laughs) So the the situation is somewhat bleak, isn't it? Well, I invite you to look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 14 this morning, and we're going to look at the privileges and responsibilities of Christian leadership, and hopefully in some way get a refreshed understanding of the nature of Christian leadership. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 14. Now, Paul is not going to hold back here, okay? So get ready and just know that this isn't me talking. I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm happy. I'm a happy pastor. But Paul has some issues that he wants the church at Corinth to understand that they need to straighten up. So, with that all in mind, let's read. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, Is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Please have a seat. In the first six verses here, Paul Paul rather bluntly 
describes the need to defend leadership authority in the church. He's taking on the larger question of how do we respond to ethical issues for the benefit of the weak brother. Remember in chapter 8, that weak brother we need to be concerned about, but also explain why the right for freedom is still there. And he's going to illustrate how to do that by looking at this delicate matter of the rights of a person in spiritual leadership. It's a delicate issue because it can be done wrongly selfishly asserting one's rights. It's a delicate issue because it can place the focus squarely on the spiritual leader rather than on Christ, and that's not where the attention ought to be placed. Here's some background. Despite Paul's obvious sacrifices for the church at Corinth, this very wealthy church was not financially supporting Paul and his team. That raises a question. Does Paul lack the standing for such a support? Paul's going to explain here that he does have such a standing for that support, and he's also going to explain why even though he has a right to it, he's not going to take it. Now, in any work as a missionary... There's four ways you can get money, basically. You can charge fees for it. That doesn't sound like a very good idea, does it? You could work at a secular job. That's what Paul was doing, working as a tent maker, or perhaps have some legacy if you had inherited a whole bunch of money, I suppose. You could beg for support going around with kind of your hat in hand, or you could gather a team of financial partners that support the work. In verse 1, in a series of questions that really are rhetorical, right? He's describing the answer even as he asks them. Paul is asserting his right to financial support from the Corinthian church. These questions must have left deep impressions upon the church body there at Corinth. Am I not free? What he's saying is, I am free. I know my position in Christ. He asks, am I not an apostle? He's saying, I am an apostle. He knows his calling from Christ. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He knows that he is an eyewitness to the resurrection. He knows his experience in Christ. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? The Corinthians are Paul's workmanship in the Lord. He knows his labors for Christ. So in these four questions, he's asserting his right to financial support from the church. I know my position in Christ, he says. I know my calling from Christ. I know my experience in Christ. And I know my labors for Christ. These Corinthians are doubting that Paul is worth it, or at least that he, de- he doesn't deserve their financial support. But of any group, the Corinthian church is most in debt to Paul for his being a sent one, an apostle of the Lord. The Corinthians are proofs, the seal of, op- of authenticity of Paul's apostleship. 
We would only have to read Acts chapter 18 to see that very clearly. This seal of his apostleship, it's the bona fides of his, um, his apostleship. You are it. Um, in the similar way that we show a passport to show that we are citizens of the country in which we're from, Paul is saying, here are my bona fides to demonstrate that I'm an apostle. You're, you're the seal of my apostleship. So Paul has every right to assert his leadership authority and his rights to the Corinthians for their support of his ministry. Now in verse 3, look at this very carefully because you'll see things written between the lines here. This is my defense to those who would examine me. That is, there were people at Corinth that were inspectors in the church. That is, they're running around trying to find inconsistencies and weaknesses in Paul. And, and listen to this. They're, they're doing that about the apostle Paul. <laughs> Paul says, here's my defense to those who would examine me. He's feeling under attack. They're putting him under the microscope. And he asks some more questions. Do we not have the right to the basic necessities, things like food and drink? Do we not have the right to a spouse and the additional expenses that bringing a spouse and having family, having children would bring, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Are we to be treated less well than others in church leadership, the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, Peter, named Cephas here in particular? Um, by the way, that's a demonstration that you don't have to be single in order to be in Christian leadership, right? Um, these guys, these other guys, the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, Peter, are also open to criticism by hypercritical people. They're the subject of gossipy conversation. They each have very personal sensitivities by their personalities and experiences, and yet somehow they're, they skip out on that from the people at Corinth. Verse six, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Is the expectation only to those who are nearby you to go without? Now Paul and Barnabas were in not necessarily geographical but close relational proximity to the Corinthians. And you know, we all know that an expert is somebody who's more than 25 miles away, right? Somehow, there's something in the human psyche where we can be far more generous and far less critical of church leaders when they are far away from us. And the temptation is that the closer they are, the more subject to criticism they are. Is it only Barnabas and I, he says, who have no right to refrain from working for a living? That is, are we the only ones to this excessive scrutiny on our financial matters. And so what Paul is saying here is a defense, as it were, of his leadership authority in the church. Now in the next few verses, Paul gives several illustrations of this right to financial support for his Christian leadership. Verse seven, <clears throat> all who work at any other job receive pay should not gospel ministers. Soldiers get paid 
even though they do what they do for other reasons than pay, like love of country. Farmers get paid even though they do what they do because they love the land. Shepherds get paid with milk from the flock even though they love their work. There's a common theme here of the right to share in the fruit of the labor. The soldier is paid by a grateful nation. The farmer gets the fruit of the vineyard. The shepherd gets the milk from the flock. So that's the first illustration. All the people who work at any other job receive pay. Second illustration, verses 8 and 9, the Old Testament supports the concept of financial support. Paul's saying, this isn't just me being bossy here or selfish. I want you to know that the Old Testament also supports this concept. And he says, do I say these things on human authority? Am I just asserting something because I want to be bossy? No. Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. I had the privilege to see an ox treading out grain along the Nile in Egypt once. It was quite a fascinating thing. But the idea in the Old Testament was that you didn't let have an ox do that and not be able to eat some of the grain. It's part of taking care of the animal. But Paul goes on to note in verse 9 that God's not interested that the oxen read this law. (laughs) That's not who it's for. It's not for oxen to read it and therefore demand the grain as they tread it out. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? No, God's concerned that we read it. Oxen exist for human benefit and God cares for them in the context of his creation. Spiritual leaders exist for human benefit and God cares for them in the context of his church. And so he says, does he not certainly speak, not for oxen's sake, but for our sake? The reason is that those who plow and those who harvest do so in the hope of receiving a share of the crop. So, First illustration, everybody who works at other jobs receive pay. Second illustration, the Old Testament supports this concept. Thirdly, verses 11 and 12, common sense dictates that financial support is right. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things? If, we, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So, the sowing of spiritual seed, which is what Paul's doing, can be blessed by a harvest of material things. And so, if others share that claim, don't we even more? The point here being that the person serving Christ to you should be more highly valued than the person far away from you. Paul's not saying that the person far away should not be valued, only that the person near to you should be valued more. So, we come now to the end of the section. The surrender of privileges of leadership does not mean the surrender of authority. In verse 12, in spite of his very blunt teaching on this matter, and has he not been blunt? (laughs) In spite of his very blunt teaching on this matter, while Paul asserts his rights to receive compensation, he does not make use of his rights. Did you see it? Nevertheless, We have not made use of this right, 
but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He would rather endure anything than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel and this very wealthy congregation. But he hastens to add in verse 13, that does not mean that the right does not exist. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel? He gives this Old Testament example that those who were in the temple service received their uh, compensation for their temple service. Those who shared in the altar shared in the sacrificial offerings. That is, they would get some of the meat and the grain and fruits and all of that that were sacrificed, they would get to share in that. Now, can that be abused? All you have to do is read 1 Samuel chapter 2, and if you've been reading through the Bible in our reading through the Bible program, you have read this, that the sons of Eli were taking advantage and grabbing out more food than they should have, and, and they were doing all kinds of morally uh, immoral acts uh, there at the temple service. So, Yes, of course, these things can be done in a very immoral and abusive way. But notice the conclusion. Paul says, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should earn their living from it. We might ask the question, well, where did the Lord command this? And I would make reference to Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends out the 72, and he tells them to go out into the towns, don't carry a money bag, knapsack, sandals, greet no one on the road. When you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. And then, he goes on to say that if, there's enter, if you ever enter a town and they don't receive you, that is, they're not going to show you hospitality, they're not going to give you uh, eating and drinking, they're going to take care of you materially, then even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we, we, we wipe off against you is what Jesus instructs. And so I think that that may be the background behind Paul's instruction here in verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul's describing the surrender of his freedoms as a spiritual leader, but he's not doing this to say that those freedoms and rights are not his. Rather, he's doing this to provide an example that goes back into chapter eight of how everyday Christians have rights and freedoms, but like in the case of food offered to idols, there are times when the Christian voluntarily gives up those rights and freedoms in order to avoid causing others to sin. Now notice it's not to avoid causing others to be offended That would be a horrific legalism that has no boundaries, but Paul is willing to give up his rights in order that there would be no offense to the gospel, as he says there in verse 
12, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Um, Let's think about some applications here. This message is entirely for Christians. Non-Christians do not understand the concept of financial support of people in ministry, and we should not even try to explain it. And especially, we should not try to make people who don't know Jesus obey it. fool's errand and wrong to do. This message is entirely for Christians. Secondly, even Christians do not understand this very well. Financial support leads to all kinds of false expectations for some. People can, just as Paul had in verse 3, people can over-inspect people's lives They can think less of those who gain their living by the gospel. People can unfairly criticize those whom they support for some financial decision or other. Uh, Several years ago now, I had a very dear friend who was a um, Bible translator in Southeast Asia. And when they came home for a year's furlough, there was a very generous um, financial supporter who said, hey, why don't you use my Cadillac to get around the country for the year? And just give it to you. Just use it. And he went out one week and brought the Cadillac back. Because you know what his financial supporters were saying? How can you, as a missionary, be driving around in a Cadillac? Didn't matter what his re, what, how, how it was that he obtained it. They didn't think that someone in ministry deserved such a thing. Even Christians do not understand this very well. Sometimes, by the way, the biggest criticisms come from the wealthiest people. Corinth was an extremely wealthy city. And yet, this was the church that gets this instruction. And later on in 2 Corinthians, they get more instruction about the matter of giving, being a cheerful giver. (laughs) Um, What's fascinating to me is that Paul is trying to declare his rights as an apostle and a servant of the Lord And this did not resolve the problem for the people at Corinth as a very casual reading of 2 Corinthians will reveal. He has to make even more of a defense. It brought about even more accusations, more scrutiny, more problems. People who are financially supported by the gospel can have undue expectations placed upon them but they also can have undue expectations. Let's be careful not to paint everything in only one direction. People who are financially supported by the gospel can expect more than they should. They can do a lot of complaining about their lives. They can complain about how hard they work, complain about how little they are paid, 
this is wrong. If you are contemplating a life of ministry, and I hope at least some of you are, get it in your head right now. Don't think that you will get rich. Work hard without complaining. And if you cannot make it on the money in one place, don't complain about it. Take Luke 10 as your model and look for another place or ways to supplement your income. Be happy in your soul with the financial limitations of ministry. The voluntary act of not asserting our rights as Christians does not mean that we've lost those rights, whether it's Paul's right to be paid as an apostle or the right of Christians to eat food offered to idols. Those are rights and freedoms that Christians have. There are appropriate times, however, not to assert those rights, but that doesn't mean that the right goes away. Sometimes we ought to abandon our rights in order to bless others, whether it's food offered to idols or compensation or something else. The ministry is a high calling. But it has to be from God. I hope that in this generation where it seems fewer and fewer people are looking to engage in Christian ministry as a vocation, whether as missionaries or pastors, there's just fewer people contemplating it. And frankly, sometimes that's because they're being guided that way by their families. I hope that there will be a generation that comes from East White Oak that will see it as the high calling that it is. It's not for people who are wanting to move up in the world. It's not who it's for. It's not for people who are inclined to build their own kingdoms, and there are many who are in ministry that do just that to their own demise. It's not for those whose value is based on what other people think of them, because you can be loved by everybody one day and hated by everybody the next. It's not for people who think that weird Christians won't ever be weird to them. They will be. (laughs) Examining you, your lifestyle, your children. You know why I know that? Even the apostle Paul got that, and he was a pretty good Christian leader. (laughs) It's not for those who have to get their way on everything. It's not for those people who are so weak that they cannot chart a direction for others. And so you may ask, as I have shared all that, well then, who in the world would do it? And the answer is, listen, brothers and sisters, no one apart from the dynamic and real power of the Holy Spirit. That's the way real, genuine work happens in calling people to Christian ministry. So this morning, will you pray with me that as we are seeing fewer and fewer people entering Christian ministry, that we would pray that more and more will. 
willing to take up that mantle and say, yes, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be what you want me to be. Not for my own gain, not for the applause of people, but for Christ and his kingdom. Will you pray with me? Now this message, oh God, we know is not for those who don't know Jesus. But perhaps in some remarkable way, your Holy Spirit has been tapping someone on the shoulder to say, you're not a Christian and you need to be. (laughs) And you're using a text like this to draw them into faith in Christ. If that's the case, God, help them to understand and to say, affirm these things in their heart. First, oh God, I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. Second, I know, Jesus, that you died on the cross to pay for sin, and I'm trusting you now to forgive me of my sin. I repent of it, and I run to you, and the fact that you died on the cross and shed your blood to save me from my sin. Third, I believe that you rose from the dead, Jesus. And because you rose from the dead, you assert your victory over sin and death and the devil. And I want you to take control of my life. O risen Christ, take control of my life. Lord, we would pray that there would be folks who would be even moved by this text to put their faith in Jesus in that way. Lord, I pray that you would be a blessing to the dear church family here at East White Oak who so faithfully support their pastors and missionaries. We'd ask, I'd ask, Lord, that you would reward them for their kindness, for the way in which they have taken such care of their own. Now, Lord, we, we see the hour growing dark. The flag of the cross is getting dimmer in our culture. Fewer and fewer, even of believers, are entering the Christian ministry whether as missionaries or other Christian workers or as pastors, there simply is not, right now, a zeal to engage in that way in the greatest cause that you've ever given to mankind. Would you from this church, oh God, raise up in this generation many Christian workers and missionaries and pastors prepared and equipped to make an impact in this world, not for themselves, not for their name, not for their kingdom, not for the applause of people, but for Christ and his kingdom.
Oh God, we pray this great prayer that Jesus taught us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.